the hook brings you back. I ain't telling you no lies. The hook brings you back. On that you can rely. This is from a song that came out when I was in high school, 1995. The song was by a band called Blues Traveler. Some of you may remember that song, and that's the chorus. The hook brings you back. I ain't telling you no lies. The hook brings you back. On that you can rely. The song was catchy, and if you could figure out the meaning, it was quite profound as well for a pop song. I say if you could figure out the meaning, because the lead singer of Blues Traveler, a guy named John Popper, not John Piper, John Popper, intentionally tried to mislead his hearers. First, his, his style and the way that he sings make it, makes it kind of hard to understand everything that he's saying. But then in the second verse, he actually says this. He says, to confuse the issue, in a song called Hook, to confuse the issue, I'll refer to familiar heroes from long ago. No matter how much Peter loved her, what made the pan refuse to grow was that the hook brings you back. You see, the Steven Spielberg movie, Hook, had come out just about a year or so before the song called Hook by Blues Traveler. And so John Popper and a song called Hook mentions the movie called Hook in reference to the Peter Pan story to try to throw everybody off the trail. But why all the deception? <laughs> What was he doing? What, what was he trying to shroud? What was the point? Well, listen to the opening verse of the song. It doesn't matter what I say so long as I sing with inflection that makes you feel I'll convey some inner truth or vast reflection. But I've said nothing so far, and I can keep it up as long as it takes. And it don't matter who you are, because if I'm doing my job, it's your resolve that breaks. Because the hook brings you back. I ain't telling you no lies. The hook brings you back on that you can rely. John Pipe, John, John Piper. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it was going to happen. John Popper comes right out of the beginning of the song. He says, listen, I'm not saying anything. I'm not saying anything. And as long as this thing sounds good, you know what? You won't even care. The genius of that song was that John Popper was telling his listeners exactly what he was doing, singing about nothing, or maybe singing about Peter Pan, who knows. But it didn't matter. All that mattered was having a nice hook, a nice chorus, a catchy chorus, and the audience would never know the difference. In fact, the very last line of the song says this, when I'm feeling stuck and need a buck, I don't rely on luck because the hook brings you back. I ain't telling you no lies. The hook brings you back. On that, you can rely. Church, the, the Bible warns us that there will be people all around us trying to do exactly that. Speaking empty words, deceiving, intentionally misleading, trying to make a buck and teaching error in order to accomplish it. And they'll have just enough of a hook just enough Christianese in there, just enough mentions of Jesus or the gospel or the Bible, just enough of a hook to try to sneak past your defenses. Just enough Christianese, just, they, might, they might talk about Jesus, they might talk about the gospel, they might say things that sound mostly right about the Bible, but therein lies their danger. And the consequences are massive. We must be adept at recognizing and dealing with such voices 
that would seek to harm the body of Christ. Our text this morning will confront us with this topic and give us instruction on what we are to do. We're in a new series in the book of Titus. If you have a Bible, turn to Titus chapter 1. We'll be in verses 10 through 16. Titus 1 verses 10 through 16 where we will be confronted with this topic of deception and false gospels and misleading teachers and how the church is to respond. What I hope we walk away with this morning is this, that our making disciples will involve muzzling deceivers. Our making disciples will involve muzzling deceivers. I'll show you why we go with that word muzzling when we get to that point later in the sermon. Our making disciples will involve muzzling deceivers. Toward the end of unpacking that in our text, I want to ask and answer three questions. Number one, who is the threat? Who is the threat? Number two, what is the danger? What is the danger? And number three, how should we respond? How should we respond? I'll read the text, Titus 1, starting in verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Number one, who is the threat? Well, our text, if you look at the beginning of it there, opens up in verse 10 with the word for. Anytime you're reading the Bible, that should remind you that, that is a, its connection is giving a, a reason or it's flowing out as a result of something that's coming before it. And so this clues us into the fact that our text is obviously explaining something or giving the reason for something that comes before it. And if you were here last Sunday and, and heard Garrett's uh, message from the beginning of Titus chapter 1, or if you just scan there in your Bible, you'll remember that in the verses just immediately preceding our text this morning, the Apostle Paul is writing to Titus, uh, one of his disciples, a church leader on the island of Crete, and he's writing to him to have proper church leadership in place in the churches in Crete. He gives qualifications, that's what we looked at last week, he gives qualifications for all these elders, all these pastors, uh, the, the, the character, the, uh, the, the capacity, the gifting of these brothers that they were to have. And amongst other things, look at verse 9, this is what we covered last week, but in verse 9, the elders of the church need to know, they need to hold to, they need to teach sound doctrine. And they, they need to be able to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. So Paul is telling Titus, have these leaders in place, they need to both teach sound doctrine and be able to rebuke those who would conflict, who would, who would uh, deny or teach anything that's not lining up with sound doctrine. Well, you might say to Paul, Paul, why is all of this so important? 
Well, verse 10, that's what he gets to in our, our passage. Why is it so important for Paul to instruct Titus in this way? Well, verse 10, for there are going to be a whole lot of people who contradict sound doctrine. The reason you have to have all of those leaders in place with all of that knowledge and with all of those skills, you need to have those leaders in place in all of those churches because there's going to be a bunch of people who contradict sound doctrine. Our verse that we started with, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. Let's look at these qualities, characteristics of these people. First, insubordinate. They're insubordinate. That means that, that they are not submitted to the truth. They are not submitted to the truth of God's word. They do not align themselves with scripture and with what has been believed always, everywhere, and by all. They are theological and doctrinal rebels. It's important that Paul starts here because the root of false teaching is a rebellion against biblical authority, a reluctance to submit to Scripture as the inspired, inerrant, authoritative Word of God, which, by the way, all of those flow from one another. If the Bible is inerrant, it is without error. Or it's inspired. It's breathed out by God. He's the one who spoke through men, gave us his Word. Then if it's him speaking, it's going to be without error. And if it's without error, then it has bearing on every area of our life. It is authoritative for us. And so those who, who deviate from that, who, who deviate from the Bible being the inspired, inerrant, authoritative word of God, this is where false teaching starts. It's a rebellion against biblical authority. This is where all deviations and false gospels and wacky theology begins. And so church, just, just a warning here. If you're listening to someone who, who begins to tweak the word of God, Listen, I know the Bible says that, and that's how the church has understand that, that, uh, understood that thing for 2,000 years, but it surely can't mean that. It must mean this other thing. Or, sure, the, the, the Bible teaches that, but you have to understand the Bible isn't meant to be taken literally. It's more of a general guidebook for good living and a, a roadmap for life. Kind of pointing you in a spiritual direction, but not authoritative in all the particulars understand what the Bible was written for. Or, sure, the Bible teaches that, but that's a, it's an ancient document in a very different cultural context. If you were to filter that through our modern sensibilities with all of our philosophical and psychological advances, the biblical writers themselves would say something very different if they were alive today. Yeah, yeah, sure, they meant that then. They wouldn't mean that now, understanding everything that we do. Or, the Bible isn't without error. After all, the Bible was written by humans, and it was copied a bunch of times. How can we be sure what it says? Friends, those aren't hypotheticals. <laughs> I've heard all of those. Individuals won't only parrot those lines, but entire churches, entire seminaries, entire denominations will give up on this. The Bible doesn't really say that. Or it says that, but it doesn't mean that. Or it says that and it meant that then, but it wouldn't mean that now. Once we do that, false teaching has arrived. That itself is false teaching, but more false teaching is right at the doorstep. When we are insubordinate and not submitting ourselves to what the Bible says and what Christians always everywhere have believed. Now again, that doesn't mean there isn't room for doubt, that there isn't room for, uh, for having questions and seeking answers to those questions. So, so, so if you're, you're hearing this, you're like, man, I, I kind of struggle with some stuff and I'm trying to figure out, 
our answer is not, how dare you? you? You know, shame on you for having doubts and questions. No, no, no we, want, we want to walk together as a church and try to get to the bottom of, of those things and, 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 and look at what Scripture says together. But friend, if you're listening and reading these people who are saying those types of things, it's a, it's a reminder to not dive in deeper with them, but to run the other way and to seek orthodox, solid biblical teaching. So, so these people were insubordinate. Who are these people? They are insubordinate. They are empty talkers. The second phrase that he uses there, their speech fails to do anything good. It doesn't matter what I say so long as I sing with inflection. Right? It, it's not rooted and grounded in truth, and it will ultimately fail to connect the hearer to anything of substance and value. It won't result in fruit that accords with godliness and sound doctrine because it's not itself connected to godliness and sound doctrine. And so we see Paul is warning Titus, there's going to be many attitudes insubordinate and there's going to be many actions, empty talkers here in a second, deceitful people who, who oppose sound doctrine. Listen, some very popular teachers, very popular churches, very popular movements are built not around God's word, but around our words. The power that we can have in our lives if we would just declare truth over ourselves. If we would just decree something to be so, then it would be that way in our lives. If we would really just claim this thing and tell God what it is that he's about to do, then we would achieve this victory or this experience that we are so wanting. We would have victory. If we would just declare our victory or our happiness or our abundance, then it would be so, and it turns God into this cosmic bellhop who's just waiting for us to say the magical words to give us these things. Friends, these are empty talkers. So listen, if we start doing that here, you should leave. Or just in general, if we start using our church gatherings to have a guy get up here and tell you a bunch of stories and personal anecdotes, if we become untethered from the word such that our songs and our prayers and our sermons are just words, and we're not helping you to see and savor Christ, we're not helping you to root yourself in the word of God and always standing behind this book and saying, we just want to show you what this says, if we're not showing you the character of the triune God and introducing you to, to him and all of his glory and majesty, if this just becomes empty talk, I, I, I'm the first one to invite you, find another church. They're insubordinate, they're empty talkers, they're deceivers, he warns. They are actively misleading people. That's what they mean. They're actively misleading people. They, these people that he's uh, 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 calling out here didn't just kind of stumble into some untruth. They're actively trying to lead people away from the truth. They're deceivers. So in verse 11, we see that they're teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Right? So deceivers, they're trying to trick or lead people astray knowingly. Whether to just be an enemy of God, an enemy of the truth, or because they're getting something out of it. They may be getting money and it's maybe lucrative for them in so, for some reason. Or they might be getting some sort of advantage socially, politically, personally, sexually, authoritatively. And so they're deceiving people for gain. Several years ago I was talking with a, a New Testament scholar. 
happened to be at an event and, and uh, had his ear for a few minutes. First-rate scholar, seminary professor, written a bunch of books. And uh, the topic came up of, a, of another popular teacher who was a former evangelical, who was now achieving a great deal of notoriety and a great deal of money uh, and a great deal of acclaim by calling the Bible into question. The Bible's not actually true. There's all these errors and mistakes. And I asked this New Testament scholar what he thought happened to this guy who used to actually write, for the, write things for the opposite side of the truthfulness and veracity of the Bible. He did that. He said, I think it was money. I think he started dipping his toe in the water and the, 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 the articles and the books and the uh, TV show interviews and everything came his way and he just, he just went off the rails. Gave up on everything that he had formerly believed. He was teaching what he ought not to teach for shameful gain. This happens all the time around us. Church, always be wary of people whose shtick is to rail against the God that they no longer think is real. It just doesn't make sense. The scripture they no longer think has any power, and yet they're going to spend their lives trying to tear that down. The church that they no longer think is anything but a group of deluded sheep, but they want to spend their lives writing and podcasting and YouTubing. Especially be wary of them if they're getting money and conference invites and podcast interviews and social capital because of it. It was happening in Titus's day, in Paul's day, it's happening in ours. And then Paul calls out a group specifically here. So he says, these people, so, so who, who is the threat? Who are these people? They're insubordinate. They're untethered from God's word. They're empty talkers. They're just they're saying stuff. They're deceiving people, and they're doing it for shameful gain. They're getting something out of this, intentionally trying to lead God's people astray. And then he says, specifically, especially those who are of the circumcision party. Now, this is most likely referring to those who were teaching that Gentiles who were converted to Christianity also needed to adhere to all these Jewish laws and uh, uh, rituals like circumcision. And so for them, it wasn't just Jesus. It was Jesus plus something else. And so Paul targets them. You have all these deceivers and all these, these false teachings that are coming up here. And he says, I especially am warning them against this group of people, this group of teachers who are going to say, it's Jesus isn't enough. You need to have Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus these rituals. Jesus plus law-keeping. Friends, the true gospel is not that. The, the true gospel is that we are saved, any of us, by faith in Christ alone. We're saved by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. That's how any of us are saved. And, and so if you're here and, and you don't know Jesus, you're not a Christian and you're trying to approach him by doing things? Or you feel like he is, God is angry at you because, okay, you, you, you see that Jesus is God and you want to turn, but you have to add all these other things to build up approval or to earn his favor? Friends, that's the whole point of Jesus. The <laughs> whole point of Jesus is that we can never do enough to earn God's favor. We, can, we, are, we are sinful in our very natures. There's something fallen and broken in us. What we need is a new heart. We need to be regenerated. 
That, that, that's the message of Christianity is that we can never do that for ourselves no matter how hard we try and no matter how many hoops we jump through, how many church services we come to, how many good deeds we do. We can never earn that for ourselves. And so that whole hypothetical situation where we're before the pearly gates and somebody says, why should I let you in? The right answer is, you shouldn't. Right? If we're talking about merit, you shouldn't let me in. But, I'm going to point at Jesus. <laughs> but you, him, <laughs> he is worthy. He is perfect. He did it all. And you said if I trust in him, turn from my sins and trust in him, that I would be saved. That's my claim. That's my resume. That's all I got. That's the gospel. And Paul looks at people in Titus' day who say, no, 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 it's not that. It's, it's that plus this other stuff. And he says, he's going to say in a second, you need to silence them and rebuke them sharply. We'll get to that in a minute. So this is still alive and well today, those who would add something to Jesus. It's Jesus plus some sort of perfect obedience or some sort of a religious uh, 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 hoops that you would jump through or this or that social cause. If you really want to be following the Lord and be a mature Christian and, and be pleasing in his sight, then you would follow this or that cause or this or that political advocacy or affiliation or this or that hot button position or ideology. Jesus plus something else. Again, there's a difference between this is an option for Christians and this is commendable for Christians. And say, no, 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 this is what it means for you to be a Christian. And if you don't have this Jesus plus this other thing that I'm all geeked up about, you can't be a mature believer. In fact, I don't even know if you are a believer. Like, we don't go there. We don't do that. We are saved by Christ alone. Well, that's all quite a bit to process, isn't it? Insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, Jesus plus other stuff teaching for some sort of shameful gain. But as you look in verse 12, these people had quite a, a reputation. Look at verse 12 of Titus chapter 1. He says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and gluttons. Now, for those more philosophically minded among you, I just, this is just for fun. Uh, don't go down this rabbit trail. This is from a commentary. I made a copy of this. Cretans are always liars, says the Cretan. Here's a commentator. If Cretans are always liars, and if the speaker is a Cretan, then he must be a liar. And if he is a liar, then his testimony cannot be true. On the other hand, if it is true that Cretans are always liars, then his testimony corresponds to the facts of the case, and he is not lying. But this would mean that not all Cretans are lying all the time, which would mean that the beginning premise was false. So, if he is lying, then he's actually telling the truth when he says that Cretans are always liars. And if he's telling the truth, then he must be lying since he himself disproves the stated rule that Cretans are always liars. I didn't need to do that. It's nothing to do with the sermon, but fun stuff that you'll find in commentaries. It's called the, the liar paradox. I don't think Paul's meaning to go down that rabbit trail. He's not talking about that, that they're, because he says this testimony is true. He's saying this is just a general thing that is true of Cretans. They have this reputation that precedes them. In fact, the Greeks coined a couple words. Kretizo was the word to lie. Kretismos, the word for a falsehood or a lie, the noun form. They actually coined a word that to, be a, to, to speak like a Cretan or to Cretanize 
was, was to lie. That's how much of a reputation these Cretans had. This quote that he, uh, that he gives there is from a guy named Epimenides of Crete. He was a 6th uh, century B.C. poet and teacher. Epimenides also said of the Cretans, uh, to the wild beasts point, apparently there weren't a lot of wild animals on the island of Crete, and he said, uh, he joked at one point in his writings that the lack of wild animals or wild beasts on Crete is made up for it in their inhabitants. Another teacher at the time, to the point of their lazy glutton comment there, said that there is absolutely nothing that a Cretan won't do to get some sort of gain. They'll do anything. So, so these people had a reputation that preceded them, which just pause for a second and say, praise God for Titus's ministry. Like when you hear all of that, when you study up on, on what Crete was like, it's like, man, that must have been a hard place to do ministry. It must have been a hard place to church plant and to establish elders. I wonder if that would be an encouragement for anyone here if you're frustrated with the context in which you work, feeling similar to Crete with deception and lies and half-truths. We need such people working in such contexts to bring biblical orthodoxy and sanity to the conversation. All right, so that's who these people are, who the, 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 the threat is. Number two, let's look at what is the danger. What is the danger? That's the question I think Paul provides an answer for us in this text. It's vital to consider this because as we're thinking about these disagreements and uh, the, these clashes that are going on, this isn't just like, I, I don't like those people. Or we have some minor theological disagreement with each other. Or they're, they're stealing my market share and I'm jealous of them. Or our ministry philosophy or our church polity is slightly different from these people. That's not the people he's addressing here. Now, there are other dangers here, which is what causes Paul to see these folks as the threat that they actually are. There are a number of things that might be said, but let's lump them in, into two categories here. Disturbance and defilement. Disturbance and defilement. So first look in verse 11. Disturbance. Paul warns Titus that these false teachers are upsetting whole families by teaching what they ought not to teach. The word for upsetting there is the same word that Paul uses in 2 Timothy 2.18. And talking about people who have swerved from the truth, upsetting the faith of some. So it's not just that when he says upsetting whole families, he's not just talking about family squabbles or some familial grumbling. But he's talking about endangering the faith of these believers. When lies and untruths infect us, it can create a great deal of disturbance for those closest to us. Some of you know this very well. The carnage that it can create in marriages between parents and children with extended family. If you've ever had a family member begin listening to people that they shouldn't be listening to or being influenced by teachers or websites or ideologies or voices or news outlets that you know are planting little mental viruses, you know how hard this can be, how painful it is. Paul is protective of these saints. But note, he's also hopeful. He's also hopeful. He wants them to be sound in the faith. He knows that that hope and that reality is out there. He's going to say in a little bit that, that he wants to, to rebuke them sharply, that they might be sound in the faith. He's protective and he's hopeful. The outworking of these teachings, though, is, is wrecking havoc and upsetting families. And 
damaging the faith of people. One theologian notes that there could be something else that, that is going on here as well, other ramifications as well, because when he says that they're upsetting whole families, the, the word there is the word for household. Uh, and and uh, in, in uh, first century, the household was the center of education in the ancient world. We often also see churches meeting in homes. And so if these false teachers were successful in the deception, it could overthrow not just immediate family dynamics for some folks, but it could also spread and infect many through teaching that would take place in the home, through family discipleship, through education, through broader gatherings of believers. So the danger is great. This is destroying lives. It's damaging relationships. It's confusing people. It's causing great pain and turmoil. It's endangering faith. So the, the danger here first is the, this disturbance, and then second, the defilement. Look at verse 15. Paul says, to the pure, all things are pure. What he means there is that if, if you are in Christ, if you have been cleansed and washed and you are pure in heart, then the way that you see things, the way that you think about things, the way that you perceive stuff, the way that you, you, you speak and act and, 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 and your actions and your speech and your thoughts, that, that will all be pure as well. The inward purity that you have, for the pure, all things are pure. The inward purity you have will then work itself out into external purity as well. Certainly not perfection, but, but purity. And at the same time, the inward impurity and the inward defilement will lead to an outward impurity and an outward defilement. The things that you think about and the thoughts and actions and speech and all that will be impure as well. Nothing will be pure to those people to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure in other words contrary to these jewish teachers who taught that external observance would is what purified or defiled you that's one of the things that's one of the reasons they were encouraging these new converts to go through these jewish rites and rituals they thought that that, that would actually lead to to purity lead them away from defilement so contrary to those jewish teachers who said that external observance is what purified or defiled you paul reminds titus that true purity is a condition of a regenerate heart that is saved by faith alone in Christ alone, not through Jesus plus your own moral effort. He says there in the text, if you look in, both their minds and their consciences are defiled, he says in verse 15. Both how they think and their moral judgment, their minds and their consciences are warped because of the error and how they're understanding doctrine and theology, how they're viewing God and salvation. And so verse 16, they profess to know God, but deny him by their works. They say they're Christians, but the fruit being produced from their lives says otherwise. It says they're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is why he feels that saying is true. They're liars, beasts, and lazy gluttons. Friends, doctrinal error comes with moral corruption. And moral corruption leads to doctrinal error. This is the danger. As I read this, I can't help but think back to a, a previous season of ministry in my former church in China. We had just a, a season of back to back to back to back to instances where church members, especially young missionaries in our church, became infected by the insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. One guy, a good friend of mine, began struggling with some doubts, 
began having some questions. So he turned to the internet. Found a guy on YouTube calling into question lots of stuff about the Bible. He watched and he watched and he watched some more. By the time he finally divulged it to anybody else, requested a meeting with me, he was so far down the rabbit hole, we couldn't bring him back. Or he wouldn't come back. He had allowed no orthodox voices to cross-examine the stuff he was watching. He allowed no pastors, sought no counsel, just him and his computer watching YouTube videos for months and months. He rationalized it this way. He said, I already know what you're going to say. I've been in the church my whole life. My dad was a pastor. I already know what the church is going to say. So I'm just going to run down this path for a while. Friends, you have no idea the schemes of Satan and the deception of the evil one to have such a perspective. I already know. Let me just indulge bad teaching for a while. I know what the church will say. He was released by his missions org, ministry in shambles, disciples confused, supporters confused, teammates wounded, church members broken relationships, and he still persists down this path today further along. Shortly after that, another missionary who had been struggling with sexual sin and trying to struggle well with sexual sin began listening to people who told her that it was actually harmful for her emotionally, mentally, psychologically, physically, spiritually to suppress her true identity and that the abundant life would be found by giving full expression to who she was and how God had created her to be. She moved back to the United States, left her missions org, left her husband, and is now in a same-sex relationship and is quite evangelistic about it. Started listening to the deceivers and the insubordinate and the empty talkers. This, again, we're not talking about, I think this about baptism, you think that about baptism, let's fight. That's not what Paul is talking to Titus about here. He's talking about false gospels and false teachings that will destroy the faith of people. That's why the tone of this has the tone that it does. I've intentionally tried to let that sit with us going up into this final point of who is the danger, who, who is the threat, and what is the danger. Because if you don't understand that, you're just going to think Paul's overreacting. <laughs> you're going to get to what Paul says to do and be like, Paul, goodness, it's a little strong. But I, I want you to see and I want you to feel exactly what's going on in Crete and what the danger was and who these people were and what was the, the carnage was that was going on out there. So you hear what Paul says and you're like, that's exactly right. Go get him, Titus. <laughs> this is how we should respond. Point number three, how should we respond? How should we 
respond? Well, there are two main things that Paul mentions in our text. The first one is in verse 11, just applicationally on what Titus should be doing here. Verse 11, he says, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. The word there for silence uh, can be translated as to muzzle, to, to put something on the mouth. It's used of muzzling an animal. These false teachers needed to be shut up. They needed to be muzzled. They needed to be stopped. They needed to be silenced. How? Well, well likely through formal church discipline if these people were still in the church. Certainly from a removal of any kind of a platform that you would give them to continue to propagate their error. Note that Paul doesn't say here to entertain them. Note that Paul doesn't say here to give them a hearing. Note that Paul doesn't say here to chew up the meat and spit out the bones. There will be time for such nuance, situations for such nuance, certainly, but not when the gospel is at stake. Not when truth about God and salvation is on the line. Not when scripture is being twisted and maligned so that it's destroying the faith of people. No, the, the nature of their error, point number one this morning, and the carnage of the outworking of that error, point number two, leads Paul to say, grab the muzzle. Silence these fools. Meaning that in the most biblical of senses, they are fools. Silence them. Church, it infuriates God when his people are lied to. It infuriates God when his people are deceived, when his people are abused. Spiritually, emotionally, physically. One not, need not be a jerk in addressing that error, but it has to be addressed. And I think Jesus modeled this for us, did he not? Jesus himself was incensed at those in the temple who were taking a place of prayer and making money in that space. And he drove them away. He told religious leaders, it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the ocean than for you to mislead one of my children. He was constantly rebuking religious leaders saying, woe to you, hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, when leaders were teaching in a way that would add a burden to his people instead of inviting them to him whose burden is light and whose yoke is easy. And so these teachers need to be silenced. Lovingly, there is a wrong way to be right. So lovingly, tactfully, but also unequivocally and clearly. The second thing he says to do here is in verse 13. You look at verse 13. So we're going to silence them. Verse 13, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Again, we saw earlier in the passage to elders from last week in verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy worthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now verse 13, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. To rebuke is to express a strong uh, uh, disapproval of a belief or an action and, attempt to, and an attempt to correct it. 
To, so to express a strong disapproval of a belief or an action and an attempt to correct it. So just the word rebuke itself is already quite intense. It's already quite intense action. But Paul calls for Titus to rebuke them sharply. The Greek word there for sharply meaning severe or rigorous. They need to know that they're not just a little off. What they are believing and what they are saying is harming others and is eternally detrimental to their own souls if they don't turn from it. You know, honestly, this, this has become my approach uh, with the cults. I'm, not, I'm just saying this is, this is an approach. So if you have uh, your own approach for conversing with Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, praise God for however we may minister to them. And I'll do different things at different times, but I find myself most often just going for shock and awe, knowing that they've been trained to answer every single thing I'm going to say to them. They, they've, they've gone through training. By the time they get to my doorstep, they've gone through the training. They know what I'm going to say before I know what I'm going to say. And so I, I, I just, I, I want to do this. I want to say, listen, listen, I, I'm not going to debate you. We could. We could go round and round. I've studied stuff. You've studied stuff. I just want you to know that you've been taught a lie. You've been deceived. And this is going to end very badly for you if you don't turn. And I'm going to pray that God would haunt you with this conversation. I'm going to pray when you're laying in bed tonight that what you'll remember is not all the people's houses that you went to where you argued with them from your book and felt like you won that argument, I'm going to pray that as you're laying in bed tonight, you remember the one guy who pleaded with you and told you clearly you are in a cult. And I pray you won't get that out of your head until you come to Jesus. See ya. Right? Not see, I mean, if they want to keep talking, let's keep talking. But, but I, I just want, I want to go, they need to be rebuked sharply so that they may be sound in the faith. They're deceived, believing a lie. And, and they are deceiving and misleading hordes of people. So friends, make no mistake, Paul's rebuked them sharply. It's an action of love. It's an action of love. Sometimes the most loving thing to do is to rebuke sharply, severely, rigorously, express strong disapproval. That's why he gives that statement, that they might be sound in the faith. He's hopeful that they might be redeemed. He's hopeful that Jesus might break through into their life and that the scales of their eyes might fall off and that they might come to the truth. He knows that can happen. They're not too far gone. But he says they need to know that they're believing a lie. The rebuke is meant to restore. This twofold approach, I think, is key. Silence and censure. Silence out of a love for the flock. Rebuke out of a love for the person. I think both of those things need to be there. And I think that's why he's telling Titus this. He says they need to be silenced. Not so that you'll get your market share back. Not so that you know, you, you're not competing with people out there in the marketplace of ideas. No, silence them because they're wounding people. They're sending people to hell. They're confusing people. They're upsetting the faith. Silence out of a love for your church. And then rebuke them out of a love for them. Not because you like to fight, not because you, you just want to butt heads with somebody. Because you're concerned for their souls. And they need to be rebuked sharply. And they, they might be sound in the faith. 
So the immediate goal is to stop the bleeding, stop the end the influence. And the ultimate goal is for this person themselves to come to Jesus and to be redeemed. We have to have both of those things, church. Well, a few words of application here at the end about this response. I have six that I'll mention briefly. First one, a plurality of godly elders. So, so a few words about application about this response is that, number one, a plurality of godly elders is essential to the response. A plurality of godly elders is essential to the response. Do you see here in the text, Paul's method for counteracting false teaching is by ensuring that true teaching exists. John Stott in his commentary writes this. He says, when false teachers increase, the most appropriate long-term strategy to multiply the number, uh, I'm sorry, the most appropriate long-term strategy is to multiply the number of true teachers who are equipped to rebut and refute errors. That's his strategy. Part of his strategy, Paul's strategy is, he says, there will be many insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers. So what do you need to do, Titus? Make sure there's solid elders in every one of these churches. So brother elders this morning, those who are here serving as elders of this church, this is you. This is you. God has put you in a place to, to know God's word and to dwell with God and to understand theology and doctrine and then to have the backbone to stand up and to, to silence and to rebuke where needed. Church, pray that God would give more and more as false teaching continues to, 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 to spread and to be a thing all around us, that we would have more and more, not just in this church, but other churches. If you want to know what to pray for other churches, pray that there would be godly men who know God's word and who will stand on it, who will be raised up and called by God to protect the body of Christ. Pray for our church that God would give us more men and that we would recognize those who are of elder-like quality. Men yourselves here that pray that, my prayer is that you would aspire to this, that you would aspire to the office of elder, that even if you would never even serve in that office, that you would want the character qualities and the, the, uh, the, 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 the qualifications and the, 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 the kind of silhouette that Paul explains here in Titus, that that would be you. You say, I want that to be me. I want to be able to refute sound doctrine. I want to be able to protect myself and my family and my friends and the flock. This is why we have a pastoral internship. Something for us as a church to, to celebrate and to get behind and to want to know how it's going and what they're reading and how they're, where they're going to go after this and what God's doing through these men. This is why we've sent pastors. How many pastors have we sent? Like 45, I think, over the last like two years. Sending pastors to other places and other countries and other cities to plant churches. We want to see this happen more and more. Pray along with us and support such works as this. Your friends in other churches, ask them these types of questions. Do they have pastors? Do they have multiple pastors? I would be terrified to be a pastor by myself. Now, sometimes there's a context where somebody has to serve in that situation. But sometimes people choose to be in that situation where there's just one guy running the show, CEO. That would terrify me. So we need plurality of godly elders. So that's number one, that a plurality of godly elders are essential to this response. Number two, godly church members are essential to this response. Again, this response of silencing and rebuking. Godly church members are essential to this response. Ephesians chapter 4, Garrett mentioned this in his sermon last week, right? God gave leaders to equip the saints for the work of ministry. 
Garrett said it, it's not just that, that God gave pastors to do all the work, but it's our job to equip you to do the work of ministry. Well, if you keep reading in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, gives, gives the, the end of that, gives the, the reason for that. He tells you why the saints are to be equipped. It's so that they might mature, so that they might reach a maturity. So this is for all of us, everybody in here, in the body of Christ, that they might reach a maturity, verse, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, uh, verse 14, so that we may be no longer children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human coming, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into Christ. So one of the reasons we have leaders who are teaching, one of the reasons we have a plurality of elders, one of the reasons we have uh, fellowship group leaders and equipping our teachers, one of the reasons that we are teaching and doing all these things is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, yes, but also so that you yourselves would not be deceived, so that you yourselves would sniff doctrinal error as soon as it passes in front of you, so that you yourselves would see that group of people reading that book and step in and be like, gosh, I, that's not a good thing to be reading. So you yourselves would hear people who are listening to certain popular teachers or watching them on, on TV or on YouTube and, and stepping in and saying, that is going to lead you astray. This is for all of us to be equipped. Godly church members are essential to this response. Number three, you, individual Christian, are essential to the response. So godly church leaders are essential. Godly church members are essential. And then you, individual Christian, are essential to this response. Friends, silence bad teaching in your own heart. Don't give ear to them. Again, I've known too many people who begin dabbling with odd teaching and then hitting YouTube or blogs or social media and doing so without any cross-examination from solid, trusted teachers or sources or mentors, disciplers, pastors. This was a danger in the first century, and we have so much more access to that kind of garbage today. So much more access to goofy teaching and weird theology. And so if you have any questions, even right now, grab one of our elders and ask. Again, we, we don't know every resource that's out there, but that's part of what we want to do is help you assess these kinds of things. I've been listening to this teacher. I've been reading this author. What, what's, what's your take? What do you think about this? Let us walk with you in that. Number four, not everything will warrant this response. Not everything will warrant this response, a silence and rebuke response. Again, keep in mind, I've already said this, but it bears repeating, keep in mind the severity of the sin and the depth of the danger is what triggers this response. Not everything is going to rise to this level of severity. Not everything needs silenced and rebuked. And in fact, you might create kind of a cry-wolf experience if you're constantly railing online or in your social circles against everyone and everything that disagrees with you on baptism or church government or uh, this or that author or this or that, you know, parenting decision or dietary stuff or public policy. If every single disagreement fits into this Titus One paradigm of silencing and rebuking, then you may cut your feet out from underneath of you. Number five, so not everything will warrant this response. Number five, some things definitely will warrant this response. Some things definitely will warrant this response. So listen, if, 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 you, if you take the perspective of, listen, churches just need to stop criticizing those who believe differently. Don't criticize that faith community or, don't, or that church or that author or that music group. 
As long as someone says they're a Christian, that's enough. Please stop saying that. That's not what, that doesn't accord with what Paul was telling Timothy, or telling Titus in Titus chapter 1. There are going to be dangerous teachings out there that we need to avoid. There's going to be things that we have to be on guard against. 25 of the 27 New Testament books warn against false teaching. And we read earlier, it's going to get worse as time goes on. And so to have the perspective of, hey, Christian, as long as we all just, if everybody just says they're a Christian and mentions the name of Jesus, that's enough. Let's, let's, let's not be critical. Let, let's, not, let's not divide over some of these things. Again, not everything, don't, I just, don't forget my last point. <laughs> not everything rises to that level, but some stuff definitely will. Pray that we would have the discernment to know which is which and walk through that in community together, figuring out what those things are, but certainly having the steel in our spine to have those and the love in our hearts to have those conversations, which is my final point. Remember the motive and the goal. Remember the motive and the goal. The motive is love. And the goal is redemption. The motive is love and the goal is redemption. Again, there's a wrong way to be right. And there's a wrong end to have in mind. We can be overbearing. We can be reactionary. We can be jerks. And we can have the wrong end in mind of just wanting to jealousy or envy or ending somebody's influence or teaching something a little bit different than me. The goal here is love, that we value the spiritual health of our churches, of our flock. We don't want anybody to be misled, and we don't want those, those deceivers to be misled themselves. <laughs> our motive is love, and our goal is their redemption. Church, our making disciples will involve muzzling deceivers, lovingly, tactfully, but boldly, and confidently standing on God's word and knowing that our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by anything else. Would we cling to the purity of that gospel, even as we turn to the Lord's table and celebrate that through his body and his blood, seeing that this is the pure gospel. And those who cling to that, to the pure, all things are pure. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask for your help by your spirit. Would you strengthen us? Would you protect us? The things about being deceived is that it's, it's deceptive. It's hard to spot. It's hard to notice. There needs to be a discernment by your spirit and, a, and a, the ability to know truth from error. God, would you help all of us to have that sort of sense? Would you help all of us to have a category in our lives and the things that we watch and read and the way we spend our times, the things we listen to, of wanting to, to invest time being built up, invest time being theologically grounded, invest time being doctrinally pure. God, would you help each and every one of us, regardless of our profession, regardless of our age, regardless of our background, to want to know what truth is and stand on that truth, that your people may be protected, that we may be matured, and that the true gospel may go out, and that false gospels may be silenced. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.